Two things. One, get very clear on what you want. So we talked about personal, professional, and financial goals. And we, I actually do business plan workshops and seminars for free about this exact topic. The days where you wake up and you go, I don't even know if I can get into the office. Why am I doing this? Like you just want to curl up in bed and watch Netflix because the stress and the anxiety and the heartache and the problems get so overwhelming. And if you're really clear on what you want, you can get through those troughs of sorrow much more quickly. This is Pittsburgh, a place where a rich heritage of making things and a fierce independent nature come together to create a thriving entrepreneurial community. Whether you're a small business owner looking for ideas or inspiration, or you're an enthusiastic supporter of local businesses, you'll find it here. I'm your host, Darren Volano, and this is the Proprietors of Pittsburgh podcast. Today, my guest is Adam Williams. He's the founder of Rust Belt Business Law. Adam, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Appreciate having you on. It's great to be here. So to get started, can you tell us a little bit about your firm? And specifically, I'm thinking about business law because a lot of people listening, they're not lawyers, maybe they're not familiar with law. What does business law entail? What are some of the big categories, for example, that you would do with different clients that you work with? And then also, who are those clients? What are the client size? You know, what types of clients are you working with in terms of business size? Or even in terms of industry, are there certain, I would imagine you run the gamut in terms of who you work with, but are there certain, let's say, industries or types of businesses that you work with more than others? The things that we do from a legal perspective, I say that we help business owners with the issues that keep them up at night, right? That's usually involving things like employees or problematic customers or people that owe you money. So there's there's the issues, there's the stressful things. But we're also in the problem avoidance business. So we will help you set up your entity, like your LLC or your corporation or something like that. We will help write contracts that can protect you so that you don't get in trouble down the road. So we, we say that we help entrepreneurs create jobs, pursue opportunities, and improve our economy because we think all those things go together. And our what we try to do, what, what we're really in the business of doing is giving advice to people because a lot of people starting businesses have no idea where to start. They don't know if they haven't grown a business before. There's a lot of uncertainty. And we've been through it, both with our clients and with our own business. So, so the, the term that we throw around at our office is trusted advisor. We work to be the trusted advisor for our clients. So with that, you, can, you, you probably gather that we tend to represent small businesses, right? We've, we've, we've had clients that are Fortune 500 and Fortune 100 businesses, but generally we are working with the person that owns the business and manages it, generally speaking, although we've got some, some bigger clients as well. So it's when, when there's an issue in the business, it has a direct impact on the owner's family life and we understand the connection. Your business problems are very much personal problems uh, and those are the types of clients that we help. Tell us a little bit more about your firm's branding as Rust Belt Business Law. So I believe when you started, you actually started off as Erie Business Law. And then at some point, you decided to rebrand and change the name. What prompted that? Can you tell us a little bit more of what went on behind that? And then also, how has it benefited your business? So when we started, I w it was the law office of me, basically. 
and I owned the domain Erie Business Law. I didn't use that name anywhere. It was I did it for SEO purposes, and then people started referring to us as Erie Business Law. So we're going to follow what our clients are doing. <laughs> uh, so we did operate uh, under that name for for quite a while, but that was sort of a fictitious name. We were still the law office of Adam Williams or Williams and Jordan. I had a, a partner for a period of time. So part of the reason that we changed was we wanted to expand geographically. We wanted to to go beyond Erie into Pittsburgh, for example. So we wanted something that captured something a little bit different. It's not, you don't see a lot of law firms that use trade names like that, but it really encapsulates who we help. And, and people, there are people outside of this area of the country that have no idea what the Rust Belt even is. But the people who know what it is understand exactly what we're trying to convey with that name. The other part of it was, and this is more of a business lesson, I needed to get my name off the firm because a lot of people called my office and expected to work with me directly. And that's not necessarily how we operate. We are a law firm. You are hiring our team. This is a business that I can step away from to work on growing while other people are serving our clients. So that's that's a harsh truth that probably not a lot of lawyers would admit to, but I didn't want people calling and asking for me. I wanted them them calling our firm. So we made the change about a year ago. It's been really well received, but I joke now that I, I think I was thinking too small with Rust Belt because we, in the last year, we have grown and we now have clients in 30 states. So our impact is, <laughs> is expanding. But the really cool part is, and this is part of my mission, the fees are being paid by clients across the country and we're bringing it back here and we're creating jobs here and we're improving our community, which is our mission. Yeah, I think that's a really smart point to make here. You know, for those listening that have service firms, uh, could be a firm like yours, could be other service-related businesses, that move that you made to take your name off and to uh, focus on the team, you're hiring the, the firm, you're hiring the company. Uh, again, that's a great lesson for anyone listening that's wondering how they make that transition themselves. So I think that's really smart. Your name is catchy. Again, that's, that's what caught my attention when I first came across uh, your name and your firm online. So, and it's different because a lot of firms go the traditional route. They use the last name, uh, series of last names or whatever, or the person's name. And, and that's the standard. That's the the tradition. And and once in a while, you come across a name that's like yours, it's branded. And I think there's uh, there's something to that. And it does stand out. It's surprising. You know, like I think you had said before to me that some states allow that and some states don't. And in the ones that do, it's surprising that more aren't doing that. Although with n- new and more, you know, younger people coming out of law school and starting firms, I would imagine that's going to change with, with younger generations. Um, I don't know if you have any, any thoughts on, on that part of it. Lawyers love tradition. We love doing things the way that we think they've always been done. And that's some, I'm not much of a rule follower. So it could be a trend, but it, I don't know. I, it's, um, it's true whether you're starting a law firm or any other business. The way that I'm going to say this sounds much more harsh than it really is, but we're very ego-driven when we start our businesses. I want to name it after me because, dang it, this is my thing. I own it, and I need to show that off. Our approach is different. Our approach just to naming is client-focused. My clients don't care what my name is. They don't care if it's my initials in the business name or my last name in the business name. They care about what we do and whether we can help them or not. So that that's the approach that we took. So let's talk about location for a minute. We mentioned a minute ago Erie. 
business law. That's because you're headquartered in Erie. That's where you're from. But you do have a presence here in Pittsburgh. You have an office here. But a second ago, you also mentioned a lot of other locations. You have clients that are essentially part of your firm or clients of your firm, and they're, they're in 30 different or 30 plus different states. I know that you also have lawyers that you work with in other areas as well. Could you talk a little bit about that? Are you sort of creating a virtual law firm, essentially? Is this a thing? Is this something that, that you know, did you just wake up and realize that that's what you were doing? Or was that intentional that, hey, we have this pandemic, we're going online anyway. I don't even know if this is a trend in, in law in general. Are other firms doing this? And so I'm wondering a little bit about that. And then also along with that, how do you choose the locations? Does geography even matter? Or is it really about targeting the lawyers with the right skill sets to be partners? And then you're just looking at maybe where, where they reside. I have friends that own firms that are fully virtual. They, they work from home. They work from co-working spaces. We're kind of a hybrid. I like the office setting. I, we, I've had a pizza party yesterday at my office. When we chose Pittsburgh, I lived here for five years. I went to school here. I worked here. We moved back to Erie. And I missed out on a lot that happened down here. I mean, P- Pittsburgh is really, really impressive with the things that, that it's got going on. And I decided that I was tired of missing out on that. So Pittsburgh was the first obvious choice for us. We're licensed in Pennsylvania. It's two hours away. I'm familiar with the community. So this is going to be our proof of concept that if we can make it work here, we're going to copy it in Buffalo and Cleveland and Pittsburgh and Lancaster and and take your pick. So we're kind of learning that, that franchise model. We've always been ready for it. I think clients needed the pandemic to realize they didn't have to physically sit in front of their lawyer to get the work done. Certainly lawyers who go to court a lot, and we've got lawyers in our firm that do that, being in person is certainly helpful. But most of what we do is giving advice, answering questions, walking people through situations, and drafting documents. We don't need to be face-to-face to do that, although we can be if we need to be. So Zoom has completely transformed the practice of law but for us, it's also transformed our marketing. I can do a webinar now and have 500 people tuned in. And by the end of it, a large portion of them will become our clients because we can, we can make a presentation. We, we, it's one-to-many selling, which is not a normal consultation experience. So yeah, the pandemic brought a lot of... The pandemic accelerated a lot of things in a lot of different industries. And for us, it accelerated the ability to practice law remotely. And it probably made it more acceptable for clients to work with somebody remotely. Because again, before the pandemic or even years before that, with the fees that people tend to pay, there's an expectation that they're going to be able to come into the office or meet you face to face. Like you said, that's not necessary. You can do, you can use Zoom now. You you could, a lot of this is paperwork. It's digital. And it's become normalized that, yeah, I can buy, if you want to think about it this way, buy high priced, high ticket items that I'm not present for. And that's totally acceptable and it's normalized now. There's that. And there's there's also an arbitrage opportunity because we don't need a big physical space in Pittsburgh that's going to be way more expensive than it is in Erie. So our overhead's lower. So we can provide services at Erie, Pennsylvania rates, which are unsurprisingly much lower than places like Philadelphia or New York or Chicago. So that's been a real benefit to our 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 clients, but also we're able to expand our team. So the most recent attorney that we hired, she started in December. She lives in Pittsburgh. So we're able to expand our footprint that way as well. Yeah, that's a great point is people that live in lower cost geographic areas, lower cost cities, essentially operating from that lower cost area as their home base 
and branching into more expensive territories, but doing it virtual so they don't need to set up there. There's an advantage there versus already being in New York City and then trying to do business in Buffalo or trying to do business in Syracuse or Kansas or wherever else. That's a, uh, an interesting dynamic that I never thought of before. Well, it brings challenges too, though, because it's harder to find talent in Erie, Pennsylvania than it is in Pittsburgh. So there's, there's a trade-off there. But if you, can, if you can find the people that are the right culture fit and that have the experience that you want and are willing to learn the things that you want to teach them, you can convince them to relocate or practice remotely like some like from Pittsburgh. Yeah, that's what I was going to say is that, yes, there's a challenge to recruit to a place like Erie because it may not be, let's be honest, on the top of everybody's list to go and move to. But because you're virtual, you don't really have to relocate them now. You can essentially contract with them. And I'm not sure if, if the folks that you're working with, if they're operating as independent contractors, maybe you can comment on that. Or if they're actual employees, uh, it doesn't matter. They're still doing work for you. But you can essentially tap into a talent pool that's far outside your geographic region and you don't have to convince them to move to your town. Although we've done plenty of that too. We've relocated a lot of people to Erie, which brings me a lot of joy. Again, going back to why we do what we do, we're trying to have an impact in our community. And it's really awesome for a lawyer to be able to drive through town and point out buildings and point out businesses and say, we played a role in that. Like having that impact is, is very motivating to me. And it's motivating to the people that join our team. So yes, we have relocated people to Erie, but we also realize that not everyone wants to live there. So yes, our our employee in in our most recent employee in Pittsburgh is a full time employee. We had to do all sorts of registrations and tax things in the city and in Allegheny County to to deal with that. We've got full time employees across the state, really, in some different locations. And then we do have some contractors. We've got some contract attorneys in Florida and Colorado. We have some virtual assistants who are based out of South Africa. So I joke that Erie is our global headquarters. Um, so yeah, we've, we've got the mix of people in the office, people working remotely, uh, and, and contractors working remotely as well. Let's talk uh, for a few minutes about your background. You had at one point started a grilled cheese food truck. And I think way before that, this is before your professional career, I would imagine you were involved in launching a board game. Can you tell us about those projects a little bit and maybe what you learned from them? I really enjoy being a creator. I was raised that way. My, my parents were like that. They were self-employed. I started my own business in college to pay my tuition. So when I started practicing, and as I practice law, helping people launch businesses, a lot of opportunities come to us. And we see a lot of needs, and we see a lot of projects that might be fun. So the board game, we actually did start while I was running my law firm. Oh, really? Okay. That was uh, certainly the biggest financial failure of, <laughs> of our various <laughs> ventures, but it, it is the best story. So we launched this board game during a presidential election. It was a political joke although a brilliantly playable board game. And in case you need to look it up, it's called Socialism. It's the opposite of Monopoly. The game is over when everybody has the same amount of money. <laughs> we launched this on a Monday. We did the Kickstarter. We did press releases. By Wednesday, the three of us that, that launched this thing were in Manhattan being interviewed by Fox News. Oh, wow. So I couldn't do that again if I tried. <laughs> um, now, somewhere in Erie, Pennsylvania, there's a warehouse full of Socialism board games because it, we didn't sell as many as we thought we would, but great lessons learned. And then more recently, this would have been 2017 or 2018, 
uh, we did launch the, a food truck. And at the time, there were a couple, we call them the OGs. We, there were a couple really good food trucks in Erie, but there wasn't that community. There wasn't a volume of them. And the year that we launched our truck is the year that Erie really turned the corner. Like we had food truck festivals and they'd all line up during lunch downtown. And that, that didn't exist before. So that was a blast. And again, a lot of lessons learned. We sold the truck and someone else is running it right now. And it's really neat to see, you know, they'll still be in the rankings for these best of Erie contests and stuff. It still, still has an impact out there. One of the questions that we ask in interviews is, what's the most interesting thing about you that's not on your resume? And I've had a couple candidates fire back and say, well, what's the most in- interesting thing about you? Because there's, you know, there's information online about me. And I, I say, well, in 2018, I spent $25,000 on cheese. <laughs> and no, nobody has any idea where the conversation is going to go from there if they don't know anything about the food truck. So it sounds like from your background, you have a strong interest in entrepreneurship. You talked about being creative. You started these businesses. They were much more recent than I thought. So I was kind of surprised by that. I, I knew a little bit about them, but I didn't know they were, they were that recent. Um, and I don't know, probably as a kid, you said something about starting a business to get through college. So this is a big part of your life and, and you really identify with this. I would imagine it's a driving force for why you shaped your law firm the way you did to work with the type of clients that you work with. Because you know, when a, a lot of new lawyers start firms, there's sort of the old joke in the industry that, you know, you're a door, door lawyer, right? That you just, you take anything that comes in through the door. People are doing divorce law and they're doing you know, wills and trusts and business and everything else. And you may, maybe you had to start that way too. I'm not sure, but you got to this point where you have focused on this niche. What is it about entrepreneurs and small business owners that you really identify with and that, was a driving force for why you wanted to, to create the firm that you created? Entrepreneurs think differently. I mean, that, that's it. So I, I grew up with a family of, of business owners and I'm like the least employable person you'll ever meet. So I always had that in me. I tried having a job. I had a great job. I worked with great people. I, I could not imagine getting off that elevator every day for 25 years or 30 years until I retired. So when I started, I was 100% a door lawyer. I once had a, a young lady pay me 50 bucks to show up to a hearing because her ex-fiance sued her to get the engagement ring back. And he was entitled to it. She just wanted me there to make sure the transaction went smoothly, right? Mm-hmm. And for 50 bucks for an hour of my time, let's do it. <laughs> I don't do that stuff anymore. But that's, I had to hustle right? It was hustle market sell when I first started. We did everything we possibly could, but that gave us the foundation to, to grow and to scale. So yes, I've got this natural inclination towards entrepreneurship, but it also turns out that, in my opinion, entrepreneurship can change the world. You hear all kinds of people, politicians talking about, oh, job creation, job creation, job creation. I once saw a statistic that 95% of net new jobs come from businesses that are five years old or younger. Meaning, all of the job creation that they talk about promoting comes from brand new small businesses. So, yeah, I mean, that we're, we're doing some, some good stuff if we can help people create jobs. And we're actually on the ground doing it. So, yeah, I get, I get really passionate about that stuff. So, you have a business background. We've established that. You also have business in your background for education. You have a a bachelor's in business. You have an MBA from Pitt. You went to law school at Pitt. When you came out of school, law school and MBA, because I think you did them about the same time, you took the job that you referenced earlier in a big four 
accounting firm. What was it about that experience that drew you to it? So instead of going the traditional, a lot of people in your position may have, may have gone the traditional law route, you know, taking a big job with a big law firm and starting that way, you, you, you went a different direction. What, what were you thinking at the time and, and what was uh, behind that choice? I graduated in December 2008. And that was the last like really bad economic situation prior to, to COVID. So there weren't a lot of options. I did a joint JD MBA program, which got me an extra semester. Most of my friends were looking for jobs over the summer. They were in worse positions than I was. And I just happened to get an internship with, this, with, with the big four accounting firm and, and was able to turn that into a full-time position. So what attracted it to me was they were willing to hire me. I think the other challenge that I faced, I, I probably blame this on something I shouldn't blame it on, but I, I, there's, there's a hint of truth to it. Big law firms did not want to hire someone who also got his MBA, who also studied business management, who also started businesses because they're looking at me going, well, are you, do you want to be a lawyer or a business person? And if we're going to make this investment in you, we want you to stick around. So there's a risk there and we're not going to make that investment. So I think there was, there was a hint of, I made it seem like I didn't know what I wanted to do. Now, at the time, I really wanted to be a lawyer. I thought it was super cool. I'd interview with all these big firms and we'd go in the big fancy buildings downtown and these incredible views and have nice lunches. And that seemed like a really great life. So I blame the MBA. I think the reality is they all knew. They knew. They could see right through it. They knew I was not built to be a lawyer as much I was, as I was built to be a business owner. So I'm very grateful for that now and uh, have a much better lifestyle than I would have if had I, had I stuck with that career path. So things worked out really well and, and aligned with uh, my true passion over time, fortunately. That's interesting because, you know, from a, an outsider perspective, you would think that having both would maybe help you, especially if you're interested in business law and you go to the right firm that has corporate law as a specialty or something like that. But I can totally see what you're saying is because it could also make you look like you're unsure of which one you want to do. And then if, depending on how you present yourself in the interview process, they may be able to see through some of that. They could see some of your passion for business and that that may detract them from wanting to take a chance. So well, lo- lawyers are very risk averse and hiring managers are very risk averse. They're looking for reasons not to hire people. So yeah, there, were, there was a, a, a combination of factors there that made me risky and, and they certainly didn't want to uh, didn't want to employ me. But it's also interesting because now it's our competitive advantage. We work with business owners and guess what? We know how to run a business. So often our advice is not necessarily the legal advice, although there's plenty of that. Sometimes it's just good business advice. And that's what's really separated us from other firms that do it differently, that do it more traditional ways. So, you know, we, ha- we haven't talked about this, but we, we are growing like crazy. And in 2020, we were ranked the number 68 fastest growing law firm in the country. Last year, 2021, we were ranked number 41. And we're doing this from Western Pennsylvania. Like we're, we're, if I was running, growing a law firm that served entrepreneurs in New York or Miami or Silicon Valley, I'd be having a pretty easy go of it. You hear the business people talk about product market fit. No one goes to Erie, Pennsylvania to start a, a law firm that serves entrepreneurs. Well, we did, uh, and and we're making it work. 
So you were working at the big four accounting firm that we talked about. And then at some point you were there for a few years, I think. And then you decided to go ahead and launch your own firm, which as you had mentioned, was just your name initially. When you did this, what was driving that choice? Did the economic climate clear up enough where you now had some choice? And also you stuck with Erie as opposed to, let's say, for example, doing it here in Pittsburgh, which is where you went to school. Did you have some sort of vision for what you could create in Erie that was maybe different than what was being offered there? Did you see an underserved market where people just aging out of, you know, your competitors, for example? And like you said, it's not the place new lawyers are going to, to launch. So maybe you saw a chance, an opportunity for somebody younger to come in and do a different. Is that this, part of it? Oh, man, this is going to be my book. I mean, this, this is the next time I do a TED talk, this is it. This is, this is, this is the topic. I got to clear up one thing first though. I stayed at that job for 366 days. <laughs> I had to stay a year to keep my signing bonus. Again, great guys, <laughs> great people I worked with, but it wasn't for me. So yeah, we moved back to Erie for the, the reason that a lot of people move home. We, we thought we needed to be helping out with our parents a little bit and get back with the family. So yeah, we moved back to Erie. There was another step in there. I, I got a clerkship for a judge. So I, I worked for this judge and I think it was about six months working with him and I had the need. I had to, I had to launch the thing. So like a lot of entrepreneurs, it was a side hustle. I had a full-time job with a consistent paycheck and killer benefits. And on the side, I launched my side gig, right? It only took six months until I was making more money from the side hustle than I was at my real job. Uh, so it was time to, to depart. So I'm really grateful that I worked for a judge that allowed me to do that. I tell people I convinced him, but I'm sure he thinks it was his idea. So great idea. But but this is the entrepreneurial story, right? I mean, so many people now have the job, have a passion for something, want to start it up on the side, and they they go and do it. And for the ones that are fortunate, we turn it into our a, a real thing. So it went from a side hustle to basically a full-time job, and now it's a business. Now I can step away from it for a few days. It continues to grow and make money, and I can focus on running the business as opposed to billing my hours. I think that the reason that I started it is the same reason a lot of entrepreneurs start their business. They think they're going to have more freedom. They think they're going to make more money. They think that it's going to be better in every way. They're completely wrong. Every book you read about starting a business, the first chapter says, make sure you're the type of person who's ready for this. It's going to be stressful. It's going to be long hours. You may not make a lot of money or any money at first. And I think a lot of people skip that chapter. They, they get in with these rose-colored glasses and say, man, I, you know, you see these kids on Instagram driving the Lamborghinis. This, this can't be that hard. Well, those Lamborghinis are usually rented, first of all. But second of all, we aren't taught how to really grow a business. In school, I mean, I got an undergrad degree. I got my MBA. I, I didn't, they didn't teach me anything about actually successfully growing a business, although I learned some other really interesting stuff. It took me probably seven or eight years to really make the transition from, essentially, I created a job for myself for seven or eight years. That was it. If I, if I stepped away from the law firm to take a vacation, I, I'll never forget, I went to Disney in, in 2016 or 2017. My wife was pregnant. I was on my phone the whole time. I was answering emails while I was standing in line for rides. I got back to my office. I had two employees at the time and they said, Adam, it's, it's like you didn't even leave. 
And they were 100% right. I was miserable when I got back because it wasn't a vacation. It was just working at Disneyland. And it was after that that I, I realized I had to make a change. And that's when I started focusing on growing a business and not just growing a job for myself. And that transition, that hurdle, is that wall is what a lot of people can't break through. And it means they can't take time off. It means they're constantly stressed. They're constantly short on money. And they can't exit the business because no one wants to buy your business that's really just a job. So the last three year, years is where we really started making the transition. Yeah, that struck me when you said that you didn't learn how to start a business in college and you were a business student because I say this all the time. I was also a business student. I have a bachelor's degree in business, finance major. I have an MBA as well. They do not teach you how to start a business. They teach you how to work in a large corporation. I think what we, and this, I'm just literally coming up with this idea as we speak, but I've thought a lot about this and I've just now, I don't know why I didn't think about this before, but I think we need to stop thinking that school is going to teach us how to start a business. College, I don't think, can teach you how to start a business. I think we should probably look at apprenticeships again. I, I don't, the, the old school way, like if, if you're listening to this and you want to start a business and you're not sure if you want to go to college, instead of going in massive debt and spending four years of your life, unless you have the ability to do it and you want to just, you know, party and hang out, go work for somebody else, get as close as possible to the person in charge that owns or runs it, watch and learn from them. That will be a better education of how you can run and start a business, you know, it's basically an apprenticeship. Instead of, I'm going to go to school, sit in class, and somehow think that that's going to teach me how to start a business, that you don't learn that. You don't learn that at all. One of the qualities, another one of the qualities of very successful entrepreneurs that I work with is they buy speed. So they use money in order to get faster results. So that's a perfect example. Let's say I wanted to go out and I wanted to learn about blockchain and cryptocurrency and NFTs. There's probably some college. I know there are college courses, actually, because I saw an ad for MIT. How much do you think that class costs with MIT? Good chunk of change. I bet there's courses out there on the internet for free that are better. But there are also experts that I could pay to teach this to me. Probably cost more than MIT, but it's going to be much more responsive. It's going to get me there faster. And I'm going to have a, a, a resource available to me for the person that I, I worked with on this. So this is really, my perspective on this has changed so much in the last few years. You know, I've got, I've got friends with student loans. I came out with maybe 75,000. I, I wasn't completely foolish with my student loans, but I came out with probably 75,000. And it's incredible now, if I go out and I do a workshop or go to a seminar or I've done some VIP days with some coaches. Earlier, well, I guess it wasn't this year, but in, in 2021, I had an idea. I had to launch a new service offering because of some pandemic-related stuff that was going on. And I reached out to a coach that I work with. He gave me four hours. And in that four hours, we mapped out the entire thing from marketing the service to providing the service to the pricing for it, Four hours, we essentially launched a business. Those four hours cost me $20,000. But had I not written that check, I would still be working on that business plan right now. I'd still be trying to figure it out for myself. But instead, I bought the speed. We were one of the first to market this, it's a tax credit. We were one of the first to market it anywhere in the country. And now because of that, we, we essentially launched a new business that 
is just as successful and just as profitable as my law firm. But it's because I went out and hired an expert to help me get there. You mentioned on your company's website that your firm's mission is to help expand entrepreneurship and job creation in our part of the country, in our region. What is it about this part of the country that gets you optimistic, that makes you optimistic and positive about being able to do that, being able to complete that mission, whether it's create new jobs, encourage more entrepreneurship? What do you see? What assets do we have that can be leveraged to make a better future here. Again, you grew up in this area. You, you, you've worked in this area. You're from uh, the Northern part of the state, but it's a very similar economy to what we have here. What do you see that, that gives you hope? I think the biggest thing is we are a different type of person from this area of the country. If you had a grandfather or a father, if you had a parent who worked in a steel mill or who worked in a factory or built locomotives or whatever, you were raised differently than someone whose dad went into a skyscraper in New York City for work every day. We approach things with a different mentality. And that's why we are, like, I have that mentality. It's a very blue-collar mentality. I got a white-collar job, I'm a lawyer, but a very blue-collar mentality. We don't realize it if we don't get out of this area of the country very often, but it doesn't exist other places. It's something that's very special to this area of the country. And we shouldn't lose that. It's certainly nice to bring in the high-tech jobs here. And we've got some really high-growth, high-tech companies that we work with. But at the end of the day, the mindset of we need to work hard, we need to do good work, we need to be honest, those virtues don't exist other places. And man, that gets me fired up. I believe that you have set your law firm up to work a little bit differently in terms of the relationship that you build with clients. And I'm thinking about from the standpoint of, of billing and, and pricing, you have access to all the same tools that the traditional firms use, right? You know, the hourly, the standard hourly billing and the flat fee pricing for certain types of projects. But you and I spoke about before about the subscription model mm -hmm. and the ability to put that into effect. And I believe that's something that you're doing. This is where, you know, a, a client would essentially pay a, a monthly or could be quarterly. I'm not sure how you set it up fee. And then for that fee, the, in exchange, they get a certain level of legal services from your firm. Can you talk a little bit about that model? What drew you to it? Why did you set it up? And, and how is it working for your firm? If you've never hired a lawyer before, and you go to hire one in general, the default is they're going to get a retainer from you. You're going to write them a check and they're going to bill you hourly for the work that they do. There's issues with that, which I'll get into. The other option is maybe you get a law firm that can quote you a flat fee. They've done enough of the work that they're confident to, to give you a number, but lawyers are risk averse. And there's always that one deal that goes haywire where they lose a little bit of money and that prevents them from quoting flat fees for all the other stuff. The one of the issues with hourly billing is it creates completely backwards incentives. You're paying me more money if I know less about what I'm doing because I have to spend time figuring it out. Well, that's not really fair to the client. But if I'm really an expert on something and I can save you $100,000 in a six-minute conversation, why is it fair to me that you only paid me for a tenth of an hour, which is how lawyers bill? So they're completely backwards incentives there. You're, you're paying lawyers for their ignorance. The other issue is it creates a huge disincentive to actually talk to your lawyer 
Because if you send your lawyer an email and you think it's a quick question, it's usually not a quick question because you could have Googled a quick question. The lawyer is going to go out and do some research. They're going to draft an email back to you. They're going to review that email. They're going to hit send. And then you're going to get a bill for $500. Well, the next time you have what you think is a quick question, you ain't calling your lawyer because you don't know how much it's going to cost. That's really problematic for new businesses. New businesses need to have a relationship with their lawyer and their accountant and maybe a tax planner and a financial planner and a realtor and all the other the board of experts, but, but with a lawyer in particular. I know I'm biased when I say that. So we decided to create a program that removes that disincentive. We've, we've got three packages, but for a monthly fee, we'll talk to you as much as you need. We'll answer all your questions. We're available and there's not, you're not going to get whacked with some surprise bill at the end of it. So this has been really, really successful for us. Our clients love this. It's actually not as profitable as hourly billing for us, but it creates a much better relationship with our, our clients. It sets them up for success. And when our clients do better, we do better. So it turns into a longer relationship. The, our average client value goes up because they're around longer. They work with us longer. So it's, it's a long-term play, but it's been really, really successful for us. And it's something that not a lot of law firms offer. Yeah. I noticed also that you're fairly active on social media. You have a lot of fun posts, a lot of casual posts. Again, something that a lot of other firms don't do. I'm specifically thinking about some of the driving ones. You know, you have the video up on the, on the dashboard and you're, you're, talking to the camera while you're driving and, and sharing some thoughts. Um, this is obviously a different approach than, you know, say a, a large and traditional law firm would take. And that's one of the advantages of, of having a smaller firm, a growing firm, but being entrepreneurial. And I, I'm assuming you, you mentioned earlier about being someone who's nonconformist and different. And I, I'm assuming that's where this comes from. So I'm wondering what role does social media and content creation play in your firm's overall communication and marketing strategy? And that's a really great question. So we, we do some pretty interesting marketing stuff, uh, and a lot of it doesn't get seen intentionally. We've got a huge email list. None of my competitors have any idea what I'm doing in my email marketing unless they're on that list. So we really like that. As far as content creation, I've learned over time that... This is not some epiphany I had. I, this is like common knowledge. People tend to do business with people they know and like and trust. Well, what better way to get to know and like and trust someone than to see what they do, right? You, I record a lot of videos while I'm driving. Part of that is just my own schedule is hectic and that's the best time to shoot content. So I put the phone up on the, the windshield. Also, I'm hilarious. So why would I not let the world, <laughs> you know, I, I, indulge in my dad jokes? But our, our culture is so important to us and our clients are drawn to that. And the clients who don't like it get scared off by that. And that's okay too, that I don't want to deal with people that expect, I did a closing yesterday, a real estate closing. And one of our clients bought her office building, which was really cool. Like that's a momentous thing. And I showed up to the closing in jeans and she knew I was going to, right? She did not expect me to be there in a suit and tie. And I'm, if there are lawyers listening to this, they're falling out of their chairs right now, some of them, because, oh my gosh, how would you face a client at the, this big moment? But it's me, right? So I, the more that I have embraced who I am and not tried to be someone else, the more successful my business has been. So there's the marketing piece. But the other piece that has become more important in the last 12 months or so is recruiting. Our biggest challenge right now is finding talent. We're spending more money recruiting employees than we are 
marketing to potential clients. And this was awesome. I had a, a final interview last night with a woman we're going to bring in as our office manager. I, re- I had reached out to her on Monday, set the interview for Thursday night. She quit her job before the final interview. She didn't care. I could have offered her half of the money that she was making. She wanted to work for us so badly because she knew the impact that we were having. And one of the ways that people learn about that culture is because I generate a lot of content. I put it out there on social media. We have a newsletter where I tell fun stories and I do a lot of presentations and webinars and stuff like that. And, and the right people are attracted to that, both clients and, and uh, team members. So that's, there's a lot of value to it. But I also find that the more valuable, useful information that we put out, the better our relationship is with our clients. Adam, as we wrap up, what words of advice would you like to leave with other entrepreneurs listening to this? Um, You have a lot of experience in your job. You work with and advise small business owners and entrepreneurs. So you're doing this all the time. You also see the good, the bad, and the ugly, probably a lot of the bad and the ugly, because as a lawyer, you're, you know, in, in a lot of cases, you're, you know, it's great. It's exciting when you're helping a client close that real estate transaction and buy that building. Uh, it, you know, it's great when you're helping them, you know, with that acquisition so that they can make their their company bigger. But in some cases, they're dealing with a, a lawsuit. Maybe they're, they have a partnership that's broken apart. There's unfortunately bad things that happen too in life and in business. And you see all of that and you've probably give advice probably on a daily basis. So what are some of the, I guess, more prominent things that really stand out to you that, that somebody listening, whether they're new, because I know you also work with startup founders or they're, they're seasoned either way, that just stands out to you as something that you would want to share with them? Two things. One, get very clear on what you want. So we talked about personal, professional, and financial goals. And we, I actually do business plan workshops and seminars for free about this exact topic. The days where you wake up and you go, I don't even know if I can get into the office. Why am I doing this? Like you just want to curl up in bed and watch Netflix because the stress and the anxiety and the heartache and the problems get so overwhelming. And if you're really clear on what you want, you can get through those troughs of sorrow much more quickly. The second thing is think bigger because you are going to deal with all this stress and anxiety and heartache and it's got to be worth it. And too many people go out and start a business, again, to create a job for themselves where they're going to make $50,000 a year, $75,000 a year. You could go and get a job doing that. You could go and get a job at Target making 15 bucks an hour. Don't go through the headache of, of the additional work of running a business to live like that. It's not worth it, even if it isn't about the money. All the money is important, obviously, but that professional impact or making sure you've got the lifestyle that you want to live, think bigger on that. Make it worthwhile. Uh, I think people think too small. I think they, they doubt their capabilities. They, they impose limitations on themselves that aren't real. I, everybody listening to this can do more than they're doing right now. I heard a lesson on this a couple months ago that just, ugh, I like still squirm when I think about it, but it's kind of a religious aspect to it. But you die, you go to heaven, you're standing at the pearly gates and God says, I'm going to let you in. But first, take this iPhone, watch this video. This is the video of what you could have been if you reached your full potential. Oh man, right? Like nobody I know is getting anywhere close to that. So think bigger because it, it makes it 
it makes it easier to get through those, those challenging moments. When I started the food truck, I had a client, really great mentor of mine. I'm having dinner with him tonight. He said, Adam, you suffer the same amount of brain damage running a $60,000 business as you do a $6 million business. And he was 100% right. And guess what? The food truck wasn't a $6 million business. But the next venture that we're working on will be because I, I learned that lesson. There's a space for that smaller stuff. But I don't know. I, I see too many people that set their sights way too low or they don't know what it is that they want. So that, those are my two big pieces of advice. Adam, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Really appreciate you being on. Thank you very much. This is great. Hey, everyone. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please do me and the Pittsburgh small business community a huge favor by giving it a rating on your favorite podcast app. It really helps others to find the show so that we can continue to build our community. If you haven't subscribed yet, please do. And if you know someone who should be on the podcast or you'd like to connect with me, you can reach me at proprietorsofpittsburgh.com or at 412 412- 336-8247. I'm Darren Volano, and this is the Proprietors of Pittsburgh podcast. Take care.